there are few things this side of heaven, I think, that bring me more joy than to stand before the people of God and the house of God on the day of God, bringing the word of God. There is timeless truth contained in these pages. If you're new with us this morning, we uh, like to distinguish ourselves by, among other things, a wholehearted commitment to and submission to the word of God as the only inspired and inerrant authority for our lives. And as you have seen up to this point, we center our services each and every Sunday upon this word. And it is truly within these words that we find life and peace and joy. And indeed, through this word that we trod the path to heaven. So it is my joy to be able to bring it to you this morning. Today we conclude our study of Isaiah's historical interlude positioned directly in the center of the book, the gospel, if you will, of Isaiah in the midst of a flurry of prophecies that Isaiah has presented against the nations, against Israel, against Judah, against their kings. Isaiah stops his flurry of prophecies and he does so to recount a handful of critical events in the life of the southern kingdom of Judah and her king, Hezekiah. Isaiah provides this interlude to prove from space-time history that Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel, is emphatically, undeniably, irrefutably a God who keeps his word. If God says that he will do it by the mouth of Isaiah, he will do it in the lives of Israel and of her kings and indeed in our own lives today. What Yahweh has determined will come to pass. What he has decreed will not, cannot fail. It is one thing for Isaiah to make a pronouncement of salvation through judgment. It is yet another to be an eyewitness of the unfolding of that salvation in history. Isaiah does both for us here and provides those records here in these four chapters. But Isaiah is also teaching us something incredibly important in these chapters. Through Hezekiah's life, Isaiah is teaching us about the character and works of the priest king of Israel, the one who rules God's people as a mediator and as a king. Hezekiah in his life reached the heights of godly faithfulness. Yet even he, in all of his faithfulness, in all of his goodness, falls short. Leaving Isaiah's readers and listeners, leaving us yearning for that true and better Hezekiah, the true and better priest king. Today as we focus on chapters 38 and 39... I want to orient our study around three simple investigative questions. Who, what, and why? First, let's talk about the who, Hezekiah. 
under your heading there, Hezekiah the priest king. Now, we're going to spend some time in 2 Chronicles. We're going to spend some time in 2 Kings so that we can navigate the land in which Hezekiah lives, both literally and uh, figuratively here. Hezekiah has been the focus of these four chapters, uh, 36 through 39, here in the book of Isaiah, right here in the middle. And we really need to get our heads wrapped around who Hezekiah was historically. What did he do in history so we can understand specifically what happens to him in these four chapters. Now, there is a wealth of biblical data on Hezekiah. He is one of the most well-recorded figures in the Old Testament. And in all the line of Davidic kings, those who reigned on the throne of David throughout the history of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we have more biblical data about Hezekiah than about anyone else because of these four chapters here. We also see an in-depth treatment of him in 2 Kings 18 through 20 and 2 Chronicles, uh, really 2 Chronicles like 28, 29, all the way through chapter 32 of 2 Chronicles. And we're going to be spending some time jumping around to some of those references. And I would encourage you, if you're taking notes this morning, write down uh, those stretches of biblical text, 2 Kings 18 through 20 and 2 Chronicles 28 through 32, if you are interested in doing some further study on the person and the history of Hezekiah. We don't have time this morning to do an in-depth character study on Hezekiah. That's a couple months worth of teaching and preaching. What I do want to do is spend a few moments focusing on eight critical realities about the person of, of, of Hezekiah and how Isaiah positions Hezekiah in history so that we can come to a fuller understanding of the significance of his life for us today. So, eight realities, eight truths about Hezekiah that speak to our text this morning. First of all, we need to understand this. Hezekiah is a Davidic king, a Davidic king. What do I mean by a Davidic king? He is a king who is of the line of King David, and we are all, uh, I think, familiar with King David, the, uh, the singing king, the psalmist king, uh, who was called by the prophet Samuel to lead the nation of Israel and served with faithfulness as a man after God's own heart. Hezekiah is part of David's line. In fact, he is exactly 14 generations removed from David himself. And so we can see, even as we consider the lineage of King Hezekiah, that by the virtue of his very existence, he reflects the faithfulness of God. God had promised David that he would not lack a man to sit upon his throne. And so Hezekiah, at least in part, exists in fulfillment of that promise that David's line would not die out. He's a Davidic king, one. Two, he's a godly king. No other king in all of Israel's history, other than maybe David and maybe Solomon at points, received the kind of positive treatment from the royal chronicler, the author of the books of First and Second Chronicles. No other king was portrayed as positively or as favorably in the eyes of God as Hezekiah. He is regarded on multiple occasions as a king who did what was good and right in the sight of God. We read in 2 Chronicles 29.2 that he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. And so we see there the chronicler kind of sets David up as this model for faithfulness and Hezekiah follows that model. He's a Davidic king. He's a godly king. Number three, he is a lawful king. What do I mean by a lawful king? 
Hezekiah instituted mass reforms in the nation of Israel in an effort to return the nation to the civil and religious customs set by Moses, primarily in the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy. While never explicitly recorded, the implication of 2 Chronicles 29 is that Hezekiah was perhaps one of the only kings who actually followed the law of the king, one of those laws which was to write a, a copy of the book of the law for himself so that he would know it, so that he would abide by it. And we see uh, a close relationship between Hezekiah and the Levites in Second Chronicles 29, which demonstrates that um, Hezekiah had a knowledge of the law. He understood the commands and the statutes and the principles of God as laid out in the Old Testament. That law of the king, if you're interested in writing that down for further study, is Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. So we've seen that he's a Davidic king, he's a godly king, he's a lawful king, number four. He is a priestly king. One of the key underlying themes of the Old Testament is an anticipation of a king over God's people who would also function as a priest, mediating the presence of God to the people. This priest-king pattern is observed in Adam and Moses and even in David in rudimentary form. And the prophets foretell of a future priest-king, and Hezekiah fits these patterns. We see in 2 Chronicles 29.5 that Hezekiah commands the Levites. He says this, Listen to me, O Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. Ten verses later, verse 15, we see that the Levites follow Hezekiah's lead as they assembled their brothers, consecrated themselves, and went in to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the commandment of the king through God's word. So Hezekiah provides respect, respected and respectable leadership to the Levites, and the Levites and the kings normally don't have a lot of crossover. They're two different offices, but in the person of Hezekiah, they do cross over. Not only does Hezekiah rule as king, but he also leads the nation in worship as a priest. He opens the doors of the temple and brings them in to worship rightly. We see further that throughout Hezekiah's life, he is no stranger to going up to the house of the Lord to offer prayer and to offer sacrifices, whether we see in 2 Chronicles 29, which says that King Hezekiah arose early and assembled the princes of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, the sanctuary, and Judah. And he ordered the priests, the, son of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. There's just one example of Hezekiah going up to the temple and acting as a priest. Isaiah 37 says that King Hezekiah heard the report from the messengers. He tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. That's priestly behavior. That's priestly action. And so we see number four, Hezekiah is a priestly king. Number five. Hezekiah is a singing king, a singing king. 2 Chronicles 29, 25 through 30 record this. Hezekiah is leading the people in singing the psalms of praise written by his father David. He says this, or, or excuse me, the chronicler says this. He then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, and with lyres, according to the command of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. 
The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David, and the priests stood with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offering on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord also began with trumpets, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshipped, the singers also sang, and the trumpets sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and the words of Asaph. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. The point here is that Hezekiah is no stranger to the musical prowess of his father David. He knows David's psalms, he sings David's psalms, and he leads the nation in the same. Not only was Hezekiah a Davidic king, but he was also a Solomonic king. What do I mean by that? Hezekiah is in the line of Judah, he's in the line of David, but he's also of the line of David's son Solomon, and, and his reign for the chronicler evokes memories of Solomon. We see in 2 Chronicles 30, 26, so there was great joy in Jerusalem because there was nothing like this in Jerusalem since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. And so we look at Solomon in many ways as a, as a model early in his life of faithfulness and wisdom, and Hezekiah walked in that same manner, so much so that he drew comparisons a couple hundred years later to Solomon. He's a Solomonic king, number six. Number seven, Hezekiah is a prosperous king. He is a prosperous king. Second Chronicles 31.21 says this, Every work which Hezekiah began in the service of the house of God in law and in commandment, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Again, in 2 Chronicles 32, 27 through 29, Now Hezekiah had immense riches and honor, and he made for himself treasuries for silver, gold, precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuable articles, storehouses also for the produce of grain, wine, and oil, pens for all kinds of cattle, and sheepfolds for the flocks. He made cities for himself and acquired flocks and herds in abundance, for God had given him very great wealth. Hezekiah is a prosperous king. And finally, number eight. For all of these positive descriptions of Hezekiah, he was nevertheless a flawed king. Second Chronicles 30 shows us two instances where Hezekiah was unable to keep the priestly law perfectly. He didn't have enough priests. They weren't consecrated properly, so they had to shift some dates around. And overall, things were not done exactly according to the book. And more than that, as we see at the end of Hezekiah's life, he acted in pride and boastfulness as he showed the visitors from Babylon the wealth that he had built over the course of his reign. The ironic end, as it always is, is God allowing the punishment to fit the crime and so Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and declares to him that all the wealth that he has will be taken away to Babylon, the very same people to whom he showed that wealth. God oftentimes has an ironic sense of humor. So we see at least eight characteristics of Hezekiah here. 
Hezekiah the man, Hezekiah the king, and really Hezekiah the priest king. He is Davidic. He is godly. He is lawful. He is priestly. He is singing. He is Solomonic. He is prosperous and, in the end, also, unfortunately, flawed. Now, they make nice chapter headings for a book on Hezekiah or a good outline for a biblical study of a biblical figure, but each of these characteristics figure closely into the narrative before us today. As we move through, I hope to demonstrate why these characteristics are important for us to understand when we look at Hezekiah in Isaiah 38 and 39. So having considered the who, Hezekiah, who was this king, we now consider the what. What happened to Hezekiah in this story? What did he do? How did he respond? So let's look at the text of God's word here this morning in Isaiah chapter 38. After the drama of 36 and 37, Hezekiah has become mortally ill here in the opening phrase of verse 1, 38.1. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. Now, it would seem here by the use of this phrase, in those days, that Hezekiah, or excuse me, Isaiah is providing a close-up snapshot of an event that occurred within the time frame of 36 and 37. I won't get into the details here, but there are a number of historical records and observations within the text to indicate that 36 and 37 are not successive stories, but actually concurrent ones. They happen within the same time frame. That's just a historical note there. So we read here that Hezekiah is, or excuse, that Hezekiah is mortally ill. Now it might be better to translate this phrase something like ill unto death or sick unto death. The NIV translates it like this. He became ill and was at the point of death. This is not a trivial illness for Hezekiah. Might be easy to go, well, okay, he was just sick, whatever. This is not a head cold. It's not the rumbly tumblies. Oh, I think I might have to go throw up. Oh, I feel sick. No, Hezekiah is on death's door. He has been racked with this illness and he is on his deathbed. He is at the point of death. This is Hezekiah, the great king, the one who, as we saw last week, trusted God, saw the most powerful army in the world decimated, turned back. He's on his deathbed. Then, to make matters even more grave and even more serious, Isaiah shows up. The prophet, the man of God, the chief counselor, whether they liked it or not, of the godly kings of his day, comes into Hezekiah with a word from the Lord. And what does he say there in verse 1? Comes in and says to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not die. Live. Put yourself in Hezekiah's shoes here for a minute. Isaiah, the man of God, the prophet, comes into your house and says, Hey, uh, whatever you are doing, get that wrapped up, get, that, get the loose ends tied up, get your last will and testament in order because you're going to die. Okay, that's, a, that's an intense word from Isaiah. If Isaiah comes in and tells you you're going to die, you're like, I'm doing my best Pastor Scott face here. If you know, you know. This death will certainly happen. There is no escape. Not only is he sick to the point of death, he's sick to the point where Isaiah is going to come in and say, and say, you're done. Your life is over. But remember, Hezekiah is a priestly king. Hezekiah has the confidence to come before God in prayer. 
So he does just that. He prays to the Lord. In verse 3, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, O Yahweh, Lord of hosts, I beseech you. Look at how I have walked before you in truth with my whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. That phrase there, turning, turning his face to the wall, it's like, what does that mean? The best that the, the best the Bible scholars can come up with on that is that wherever Hezekiah was, that particular wall was where the temple was. And so he turned to face the temple much as Daniel did when he would pray towards the temple three times a day during his captivity in Babylon. Here we also then see Hezekiah the singing king and Hezekiah the Davidic king as he echoes the words of his father David written 14 generations before. You can write this down, Psalm 18. What does David say there and how does, how does Hezekiah invoke that language even here in his own life 200, 300 years later? What does David and, and, to, and, to, and in an extended form Hezekiah say? I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry for help came before him. My cry for help before him came into his ears. That's the sense of the prayer that Hezekiah prays here in verse 3. He prays with passion. He begs the Lord, deliver me from death. And he's weeping bitterly. Then Isaiah returns with another word from the Lord. 38, 5 through 8. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of your father, David. Notice that connection there that Isaiah makes as Hezekiah prays. His prayer is such that God hears it and understands it as the God of his father, David. God does what he does here for the sake of his servant, David. We've got to understand that connection between Hezekiah and David. I have heard your prayer, says the Lord. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. Take that 15 years, lock it up, keep it up here. We're going to return to that later. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. So right there, we can kind of see that, that Isaiah is alluding to the fact that this probably happened in the middle of that siege that we talked about in 36 and 37, when Assyria is sort of surrounding Jerusalem, and, and everybody's kind of freaked out, and the messengers sort of come and have this, this talk at the wall, and they're kind of trying to figure things out, and the guys from Assyria are like, you guys just need to give up, like we're coming. And the guys are like, oh, yeah, they're scared. And then Hezekiah goes and prays. All these, are kind of, all these events kind of happen at the same time. And God gives him a promise. He says, I'm going to give you 15 more years. I'm going to deliver the city. I'm going to deliver you from the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city. And again, we draw that back to the whole idea of, 
of the, the connection to David, that the reason that all of these things happen is because of primarily God's faithfulness to his promise to David. Now, we won't dig into all the implications of that right now, but we need to remember that God is doing what he's doing here in order that he might demonstrate himself powerful enough to be faithful to his promise to David. And then what happens? Verse 7, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing which he has spoken. Behold, I will cause the shadow on the stairway which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz to go back 10 steps. So the sun went back 10 steps on the stairway in which it had gone down. Now there are a lot of biblical scholars out here and they, you know, they, 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 they have pasty white skin because they live in a tower and they never leave that tower and they pour over hours and hours and hours and go what could be the interpretation of this sign what is this sign that has been given i can't understand it just as god lets the punishment fit the crime he lets the sign fit the deliverance what does he say i'm going to add 15 years more to your life so god literally winds the time of the sun back on that day to show hezekiah that he's going to wind the years back on his life, he's going to give him 10, whatever, 10 minutes more in the day as he will also give him 15 more years in his life. Yahweh acknowledges Hezekiah's prayer, a prayer given in the spirit of his father David. He answers it, grants Hezekiah 15 more years, and he promises to deliver him, deliver the city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and then confirms the word as we see with a sign only seen one other time in Scripture, the altering of the course of the sun. Also, a quick historical note here on the turning back of the sun. In the Second Kings narrative, it calls this the steps of Ahaz, which means you, you read this and you go, well, maybe Hezekiah's like up on like the third or fourth floor of the palace, and he's got some stairs that are coming up to his room, his sort of sick isolation room, and there's like a window or whatever, and that's how you sort of imagine, at least that's how I imagined it. But this idea of the steps of Ahaz indicate that this is probably actually a monument, like a giant sundial, kind of like a public clock. So not only does Hezekiah see the sun, he's like going back down the steps instead of up the steps, everybody can see this. So God is demonstrating his power, not just to Hezekiah, but to everybody who's there who can see this sort of public clock, this public sundial. Heavy dose of symbolism, as we saw, God is turning back time on that day to demonstrate to Hezekiah that he is turning back the time on his life. Now here in the context, we see what we, what we might call kind of a long form parallel, what, what he does in verse 9 all the way down through verse 20 is he kind of rewinds and he gives us the full explanation of the prayer that Hezekiah prayed in verses 2 and 3. So through in 9 through 20, we see this sort of long form of the prayer that, that Hezekiah prays. Kind of this song, a little reflection on what happened. What does Hezekiah say? A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. I said, in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. What does that mean? In the middle of my life, that is literally translated at the noontime of my life, at the, at the midpoint of my life, 
I was to see death. Based on the, the timelines of Scripture, we can deduce that Hezekiah is probably about 39 years old. So he's well in the, in the middle point of his life, especially when you consider the life of his father and the life of his son who lived to be to their 70s and 80s. He's in the middle of his life. He laments the fact that he will not see the Lord in the land of the living and will be deprived of all these human relationships. What does he say? 11, I will not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. He uses this picturesque verbiage in verses in verse 12, to describe the, the taking of his life, it's like a shepherd's tent. My dwelling is pulled up and removed from me as a weaver. I rolled up my life. The Lord cuts me off from the loom from day and night until you, Lord, make an end of me. He describes his pain, broken bones, moaning, physical oppression. In verse 15, he acknowledges that even his pain is from God. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I will wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. In verse 16, he begs the Lord, restore me to health. Let me live. Verse 18, he appeals to God's glory. If I die, I can no longer praise you even as I teach my children to praise you. And then finally, he expresses confidence. It is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me. So we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. Again, we see that, that summary of Hezekiah the Davidic king, Hezekiah the priestly king, Hezekiah the singing king. All those things come together in verse 20. He trusts that the Lord will save him. He trusts that the Lord will save him so that he can continue to praise him in the temple with song. Then Isaiah again ties the story back, verse 21, to the first part of the section. He records his own preparation of a fig cake as a remedy. And you're like, okay, fig cake, whatever. Just keeps just going on right past that. But even in this small little fig cake detail here, we see something important. Some commentators have pointed out that for boils on the skin, figs are a terrible remedy. It may actually cause additional harm. It's, it can kind of be like a poison when you're dealing with boils. And if so, this detail would suggest a practical, real-life demonstration of God using what human wisdom would consider weak, foolish, and otherwise generally wrong to demonstrate his own power and wisdom and righteousness. God is in effect saying, I can take the most impotent remedy and use that to heal Isaiah. And in that I'm demonstrating that Isaiah is not healing him, Isaiah's not healing Hezekiah. Hezekiah is not healing himself. Some doctor isn't coming and healing Hezekiah. I am the one who heals Hezekiah. That's the word of the Lord. Even in something so small as this little, this little fig cake that gets applied to the boil. And then Hezekiah asks for the sign, and then that's the sign that Isaiah gives to him. When you go back to verse 5, that's the sign. So what happens here, in summary, to Hezekiah? We'll touch more on this later. But functionally, we see Hezekiah experiencing a type of resurrection. He is at the point of death, as in he could be quite literally one breath away 
from passing from this world, and the Lord redeems him out of that and adds 15 years to his life. Hence, we have called this, this first act in this story resurrection. This is a picture of resurrection. And while it's not, while, while Hezekiah was fully dead, he was so close that we can consider this a type of resurrection. That's act one, resurrection. Let's turn our attention to chapter 39 as we see a second act, his downfall. So at this point in time, you've got to consider Hezekiah in the 14th year of his reign has become pretty notorious throughout the Middle East. He is, he, we'll see him effectively thwart the siege of Assyria upon Judea and Jerusalem, miraculously recovered from his deathbed. He's led the southern kingdom with great conviction and clarity, and according to the chronicler, is the only king in the history of Israel to come close to the fame and glory of Solomon. So, much as it was in Solomon's day, Hezekiah attracts the attention of the watching world. For Solomon, it was, in 1 Kings 10, the Queen of Sheba. For Hezekiah, it was Merodach Baladon, the Prince of Babylon. Now, Merodach's extended hand of goodwill may not be as innocuous as it seems if you understand it in the context of this destruction of Assyria. Merodach knows of Hezekiah, knows that he has recovered, sends him a letter and a gift. But there is something to be said about the political motivations here of Merodach Baladon. If this guy Hezekiah was somehow able to decimate 185,000 soldiers of Assyria, this is a guy who I would like to be aligned with. Because nobody can touch Assyria in the ancient Near East. In these days, man, Assyria, they were the world power. So, whatever his intentions were, that's not the point of the text, whatever Merodach's intentions were, he decides to pay Hezekiah a visit. And if you read Second Chronicles, you know that this visit was ordained by the Lord to test Hezekiah. And as we will see, Hezekiah failed the test. At that time, Merodach Baladon, son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and recovered. Hezekiah was pleased. This is Hezekiah's key mistake. He should know by now, given all of the prophecies that he's heard from Isaiah about foolish alliances, he should know that he should be wary of a rising pagan world power suddenly extending an arm of goodwill to him. If Hezekiah was wise, truly he would go, hmm, this is probably not a good idea. Nevertheless, He's not wary, he is not wise. Instead, what does he do? He receives the envoy with joy and gladness. Open the gates, come ahead. Come take a look at all my stuff. He's like a kid, right? Going over to the neighbor kids. Hey, come look at the new toy I just got for Christmas. It pleased him to do this. Now, Hezekiah's record is rather neutral, or excuse me, Isaiah's record is rather neutral on Hezekiah's reasoning behind this, though in the next few verses, Isaiah does imply what was going on in Hezekiah's mind. 
But the chronicler gives us some insight. Second Chronicles 32. There he says that Hezekiah was prideful in his heart and did not respond with humility and gratitude for the answer that the Lord provided to him in his recovery. The chronicler further comments that God sent the envoys from Babylon to test Hezekiah to see what was in his heart. And it is in that visit from the envoys that Hezekiah's great flaw is exposed. His pride in his accomplishment. And certainly, Hezekiah did a great many good and wonderful things for the nation of Israel, the southern kingdom, during that time. His problem was he ascribed glory to himself rather than glory to God. He acts in pride by bringing them in. Has, Isaiah shows up and says, what are, you, what, what are you doing? What's going on? What do these guys say? What do they want? And he says, they've come to me from a far country. What have they seen in your house? They've seen everything that is in my house. There's nothing that I haven't shown them. Then Isaiah says, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when everything that you just showed to Babylon is going to be given to them. Hezekiah's word from the Lord would go something like this, Hezekiah, you can't take this with you. You should have given glory where glory was due. Instead, you took it for yourself, and now you are being punished in like kind with the sin that you've committed. But then Hezekiah bounces back. Verses 6 and 7, your stuff's going to go to Babylon, your kids are going to go to Babylon. And then verse 8, Hezekiah affirms the word of the Lord. He says, the word which you have spoken is good. Hezekiah receives this rebuke from the Lord with humility and with gladness. In the end, proving that he is still the faithful king that we knew him to be early in his life. And this did come to pass. Eventually, Babylon carried off in three waves all of the inhabitants of the southern kingdom. Even Hezekiah's own son, Manasseh, was taken away. He came back, but that was a prefiguring of just a few generations later when Hezekiah's descendant, Jehoiachin, would be taken to Babylon for good. Hezekiah's rise and fall, his resurrection and his downfall. We've got a third question to answer. Why? Why does Isaiah include this? On the even bigger scale, why does God include this in his word? These are some interesting stories, for sure. I mean, that's cool, the sun turns back, that's nice. 185,000 people get decimated. That's nice. Man, that's tough for Hezekiah. He was prideful. The Lord took it away from him. Interesting stories, but there's always a challenge that comes with teaching Old Testament narratives. We, we, we don't come to God's word just to look at historical realities. I didn't come here to say, hey, here's a history textbook. Let's read some history and go home. That's not the point. The point of God's word is to cause us to reflect on the deeper truths that are embedded 
here, we know from 1 Peter 1.12 that every word written in the Old Testament was written to serve God's people for all time, and that includes us. How does this text serve us today? How do we communicate this in a way that encourages, exhorts, and builds us up? So, the question we need to ask then, knowing already that every word is given for this purpose, we need to ask how and why this connects to us. Simply, why was this included in the Bible, and what do we do with it? What do we do about it? Again, the Bible is not attempting to be an exhaustive compendium of ancient Near Eastern history. It is not trying to be an encyclopedia. It was not intended for that. It was intended to teach, reprove, correct, to train in righteousness. So how does this text do that? I want to highlight five practical ways here as we move forward. Number one, these stories are included to demonstrate how God deals with those who worship him rightly as opposed to those who worship him wrongly. Don't let the contrast of 38.5 and 37.38 be lost on you. What does the text say? It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god. This is Sennacherib. We saw this last week. Adramelech and Sherezer, his sons, came and killed him with the sword, and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And then what happens? Two, three, really two through five for Hezekiah. Instead of worshiping a false god, Hezekiah goes to the one true and living God. Hezekiah's worshiping the right God in a right way. And God honors that. Sennacherib is worshiping a false god and through his own sons God destroys him. Hezekiah worships the one true and living God and by the record of his life does so in keeping with God's laws about how we are to approach him. And God does not destroy him but spares his life. Our charge then is to ensure that we, like Hezekiah, worship God rightly. First, we've got to answer the question, do we worship him at all? Do we worship the one true and living God? Is he the sole focus of our hearts and of our minds and indeed of our lives? Or do we worship false gods, false gods of our own making? The second question we've got to ask is, do we worship the one true and living God? We've got that much. But do we worship him as he is and as he has revealed himself to us? Or do we worship our own version of God? A version that suits our wants and our needs and our desires. Do we worship a God who has made us in his image? Or do we worship a God whom we have made in our own image? Thirdly, do we worship him in total reliance upon our union with Christ? so that our worship is acceptable to him? Do we trust that Christ has made us pure and subsequently has made our worship pure? Fourthly, is our worship pure of heart before him? Do we worship God for God or do we worship him because we secretly want to get something out of it? Do we worship God in hopes that he will help us feel better about ourselves, that he'll help us feel like a winner? 
Do we worship God in hopes that he will heal our sicknesses? Do we worship God in hopes that he will give us a jet? Or do we worship God because he himself is greater than our self-esteem? He's greater than our health. He's greater than our riches. He's greater than anything we could ask or think. Do we worship him because he is supremely true, supremely good, and supremely beautiful? Do we worship him because we acknowledge in, in humility that to worship him is the greatest privilege we could receive? Friends, let our worship this morning be true and right in Christ. Let it be rightly directed. Let it be rightly empowered. Let it be rightly motivated. Second thing, these stories are included to demonstrate how we are to pray in sickness. Yes, Hezekiah sets an example for us as to how we are to come to the Lord when we or when a loved one is on death's door. Now, we need to know this. God does not guarantee that he will heal us every single time that we pray for physical healing. But what Isaiah does here for us as he records Hezekiah's prayer is he demonstrates to us what right prayer for physical healing looks like. As we pray for our own health and for the health of others, we should pray with honesty about our physical state. We should pray with appeals to God's character and promises, and we should pray with confidence in God's healing power and with even more confidence in God's resurrecting power, knowing that even if God does not heal our present body in this life, he will give us a new body in the life to come. Number three, these stories are included to demonstrate God's dealings with human pride. Hezekiah is given a new lease on life and fails to give credit where credit is due. And then on top of that, flaunts his accomplishments before a pagan king. God takes these kinds of affronts to his character seriously. And while God's favor is not taken away from Hezekiah, his faithfulness early in his life is not diminished. Nevertheless, God ensures that his descendants will be brought into captivity and all his wealth and all his riches will be taken to Babylon. Our charge this morning then is to check our own pride. Do we elevate our accomplishments as our doing or do we consider all things as they truly are? Good gifts from a good God who is a good father and gives all things from the good hand of his grace. And that leads us straight into number four. These stories are included to demonstrate that all good gifts come from God. And if they come from him, he can take them away. Hezekiah's wealth was not ultimately his own. He could not take it with him when he left this earth. And God saw fit then to give it to foreign kings and nations. The question for us is this. Do we acknowledge God's complete ownership over all things? Do we recognize that any penny of material wealth that we might have is a gift from his hand? Do we offer grateful praise to him for his gifts to us on this earth? Do we hold all of, things, all of these things with a loose and humble hand, knowing that a bad business deal, a tiny spark, 
or a cunning thief in the night could take it all away from you in an instant. All good gifts come from God. We are to acknowledge that. Finally, these stories are included to demonstrate God's grace and our failures. God punished Hezekiah, but even in that, he gave him grace and took him from this earth before the destruction of Babylon came upon all that he had built. God did not subject Hezekiah to the fullness of his wrath, but spared him. God's grace makes its way into our own lives in small ways like this as well. We are all certainly aware of situations in our own lives that should have gone much worse than they did. And yet God and his grace spared us from the worst possible outcome. Five practical reflections on the story of Hezekiah here in Isaiah 38 and 39. But there are two more theological implications that I think are incredibly fascinating and incredibly instructive. Hezekiah, in this text, as he is portrayed by Isaiah, looks forward to a new Hezekiah, to a true Hezekiah, to a better Hezekiah. Hezekiah exists at almost every point in his life as a new David, right? It is not a stretch to say that Hezekiah fits the picture of the raised up descendant who would come after David. And we can look to the Psalms to understand how David thought about his descendant, the descendant that God promised to him in second. Psalm 1, David's descendant is a holy man who delights in the word of God and separates himself from sin and sinners. By and large, that was Hezekiah. Psalm 2, David's descendant is a king installed in Zion who rules over the nations with authority. Hezekiah. Psalm 16, David's descendant would not have his soul abandoned to Sheol and would have the path of life made known to him. Hezekiah. Psalm 18, David's descendant calls to the Lord in his time of distress and is delivered with his life. Hezekiah. Psalm 72, David's descendant is a wise, righteous, and prosperous king. Hezekiah. Yet Hezekiah was not a perfect king. Hezekiah fell short. He painted a very clear picture with his life of what the ideal Davidic king could and should and indeed would be. Yet in the end, he fails. His pride gets the better of him. And in the end, despite being brought back from death, he still dies 15 years later. Thus, Isaiah portrays Hezekiah not as being the full and final descendant of David, but as an ectype of the full and final descendant of David. He is portrayed as a son of David who teaches us about the son of David. Each of these two stories teach us a truth about Christ, the true son of David. Hezekiah's recovery teaches us what I call an escalated truth. In other words, Christ escalates or elevates Hezekiah's experience and clarifies a deeper meaning in Isaiah's record of Hezekiah as he fulfills it. Hezekiah's recovery from the point of death would have taught Isaiah's audience that they were, in keeping with Psalm 16 and Psalm 18, looking for a son of David who would be, as Hezekiah was, at the very gates of death, and yet God would not allow him to stay there. Christ escalates and elevates this truth because like both Hezekiah and David, he faced death. 
like Hezekiah and David, he relied completely on Yahweh for his inheritance of life, trusting that God would not abandon him to Sheol. Like Hezekiah and David, the cords of death encompassed him. The cords of Sheol surrounded him. The snares of death confronted him. And just as his fathers, Hezekiah and David, as he faces death, he looks not to himself, but to his father as he cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But here is where Christ escalates and elevates the experience of David and of Hezekiah. David and Hezekiah only brushed with death. God saved them at the 11th hour and extended their lives. Christ, on the other hand, went all the way to the grave. The cup of death that was only smelled by David and Hezekiah was drunk down to the dregs by David and Hezekiah's sons. But just as Christ escalates and elevates David and Hezekiah's brushes with death, so also he escalates and elevates their recovery. David and Hezekiah rose from their deathbeds. Christ is risen from the grave. And more importantly, even than that, David and Hezekiah only had their lives temporarily extended. They still died later. But Christ, his life is now eternally glorified. He did not die a second time, but ascended bodily to the throne room to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and mediating as the true and better priest king. Therefore, Isaiah teaches his readers, as well as us today, a profound truth. The raising of Hezekiah from his deathbed guarantees the raising of Hezekiah's son from his grave. And by extension, then, also guarantees the raising of the son's people from the grave. As believers in 2022, we can take heartfelt hope and courage from Hezekiah's recovery, knowing that it was accomplished by the same power that will raise our own bodies from death as well. Therefore, we can face coronavirus, we can face lymphoma, we can face mental illness, we can face anything that our physical bodies suffer from now because we know that we can turn our face to the wall, cry out to the God of David and trust that whether in this life or the next, we will be free from our physical infirmities. That he will not merely extend our lives by 15 years, but that he will extend our lives forever. This is the hope that we draw from Hezekiah. But Isaiah also teaches us another truth. This time, not a truth of escalation, but a truth of reversal. Hezekiah exalted himself. He exalted his wealth and his treasures and his accomplishments. And he flaunted them before a watching world. And God humbled him. God showed him that whatever he had, he had as a gift from above. Christ on the other hand, did not exalt himself, but humbled himself. Humbled himself by becoming a man, and not only a man, but a bondservant. He was not proud, but was obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And because of Christ's obedient humility, his father saw fit to exalt him and give him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, the knee of Merodach Baladan, and the knee of Hezekiah, and the knee of David, and the knee of Isaiah, and the knee of everyone in this room, and indeed everyone on the planet, would bow before him. 
Hezekiah's pride demonstrates that he is only a son of David, a faithful but flawed man. Christ's humility demonstrates that he is the son of David, true God and true man, the one who fulfilled all that Hezekiah did and said and was. As we close, there is a final thread here, one that demonstrates God's complete providence throughout all of human history and one that connects Hezekiah to God's plan for the world. The greatest theme in all of Scripture is the theme of the seed. God's very first redemptive gospel promise is made in the context of the seed when he told Eve that her seed would crush the head of the serpent and claim victory over the fall. The Old Testament proceeds to trace that seed. And indeed, the story of the entire Old Testament is centered around that seed. It passes to Abraham, to whom God promises a seed who will bless the world, and comes to David, to whom it is revealed that the seed will rule on his throne forever and ever. Hezekiah is a part of the line of the seed. He is a descendant of David, of the royal line, and consequently of the seed line. It is not an overstatement to say that God's plan for all of history was passing through Hezekiah. But here's where things get interesting in our text for this morning. As far as we can tell here, Hezekiah has no children. When he falls ill, the promised seed of Eve, Eve, Abraham, and David has stopped with Hezekiah. If he dies, the seed dies. If he dies, the line of salvation and blessing die with him. If Hezekiah dies, hope dies. But Hezekiah's God and David's God and Abraham's God and Eve's God and our God is a God who keeps promises. He is a God whose plan will not fail. So God raises Hezekiah up, not only to teach us a lesson about the resurrection of the true and better Hezekiah, but to demonstrate his unfailing commitment to keep his word to Eve, to keep his word to Abraham, to keep his word to David. Thus God raises Hezekiah up for the sake of his father David, and by extension for the sake of his father Abraham, and for the sake of his mother Eve. He raises Hezekiah up to keep the seed intact the royal and redemptive line alive. And three years later, after Hezekiah raises up from his deathbed, God makes good on his promise. Manasseh is born. The seed survives. The line lives. Hope shines forth. For from the line of Eve and Abraham and David and Hezekiah and Manasseh comes the Savior, Christ the Lord. God made good on his promise. The seed of the woman has come and by his resurrection has crushed the head of the serpent. One question remains. Do you know Christ the seed? Have you believed in him? Have you trusted his life and his death and his resurrection is completely satisfactory and completely victorious on your behalf? Are you in him and he in you this morning? Friends, if you don't know him today, let today be the day of salvation. This is the day that Christ should be magnified in your hearts as Savior. I urge you, receive him by faith today.
And if we do know Christ is Savior today, I urge you, look to Him once more. Draw your eyes afresh to the risen and ascended Christ, the one who humbled Himself to death and was raised to glory. May we never lose our appetite for Christ. May we never lose our wonder at His truth and His beauty and His goodness. May we never lose our humble gratitude for all that He has accomplished for us and is accomplishing for us even right now as our righteous priest king.